A great philosopher of the internet once said, Always be yourself. Unless you can be Batman. Always be Batman. While neither of us are Terry McGinnis and will likely never be Batman, we can live vicariously through him in his many comic adventures. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners. My name is John. My name is Dylan. And this is episode 138, where we're covering two shorter stories. We're covering Robin's Secrets Revealed and Birds of Prey, The Big Romance. All right, as normal, we're going to start off with the summaries. I'm going to go ahead and do the Robin's Secrets Revealed. Robin's tracker died while he was out on a surveillance mission watching the new police commissioner. This, is, of course, takes place after the events of Officer Down. Robin gets back to Brentwood in the daylight and hides in a closet on a rooftop to get some sleep. While he is sleeping, Batman enlists Stephanie Brown to help search for Robin. When Robin wakes up, it is nighttime again, and he heads back down to his dorm room in Brentwood. As he prepares to head out on patrol that night, he is confronted by Stephanie, who addresses him as Tim, his real name, who she didn't know beforehand. He freaks out and tries to leave, only to run into Batman. He, he gives Batman a dressing down, saying that it is not his right to give up his secret identity to Stephanie, and leaves. Batman tells Stephanie to let him go, and they need to go to work. Yeah, it's only a single issue, so it's yeah. a fairly short summary. Um, I will now give us the summary for Birds of Prey, The Big Romance. Barbara hires Jason Bard, a private detective, to tail a woman and sends him to Cannes in France. When Bard runs into the woman, it is Dinah Lance, the Black Canary. As Bard tries to place a tracker on her suitor's boat, he is captured by Ra's al Ghul. Dinah interrupts Ra's before he can kill Bard, and she takes him back to the shore. She does not want to believe that her suitor is Ra's al Ghul and returns to the boat. Barbara helps Jason escape the men that Ra's sent to kill him, and then enlists Militia, Power Girl, and the Blue Beetle to help rescue Dinah from Ra's. Ra's tries to get Dinah to marry him, but she realizes that he really is Ra's al Ghul and tries to refuse. When Oracle's rescue attempt descends on Raish's hideout, he and Talia head to an escape submarine, leaving his thugs to take on the rescuers and kill Dinah. During the fight with Raish's main henchman, Dinah's back is broken. When Barbara and Blue Beetle finally reach her, they put her in the Lazarus pit, and she emerges healed and with her canary cry restored. So that was a little bit longer of a story. It was uh, five issues, and uh, Secrets Revealed was just one issue. Yeah, so... Um, most of our Education Alley content is going to come from Birds of Prey. In fact, I think all of it does. Yeah. Um, our first entry there is Cannes, which I mentioned was in France. This is where Dinah was being tailed. Um, Cannes is a re- resort city in the French Riviera. Riviera? Riviera. It's the Riviera area. <laughs> That's a hard one. <laughs> Cannes is a resort city in the French Riviera on the su- southeastern coast of France. It is most famously known for the Cannes Film Festival, which is one of the most prestigious film festivals in the world. Yeah, a lot of really big films go through there. Yeah, it's not quite as... um, well. It's more of a status symbol now than it is really a a showcase for new new talent, I would say. Yeah, it's it's not like... What's the other one? The one in America? Uh, Banff? Not Banff. Uh, Um, The one in Texas? Uh, South by Southwest? Not South by Southwest. Uh, the one in Colorado? <laughs> There's so many of them. Sun, Sundance is the one I that's the one in Colorado. Yeah, that's the one I was trying to come up with. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot more film festivals now than there used to be. Um, one of our favorite directors, Kevin Smith, he when he went to Cannes in 92, it was more of a big deal because there weren't as many film festivals. Yeah, and it was you know a very independent filmmaker creating something. Next we have is Bezik, which is a casino game. Am I butchering that pronunciation? I think that's right. Oh, wow. Hey. <laughs> so it's a 19th century French card game. Usually it's played with two players. You win by taking tricks, similar to spades and hearts, and being the first player to get 1,000 points. Yeah, it's kind of a combination game. I was reading up on it, and I was like, well, it's not really like spades. It's not really like hearts. It's not really like Mealborn. It's kind of somewhere in the middle. It's kind of a weird game. Yeah. Um, it kind of reminded me of um, Blackjack. Hmm. Because just in, in the what we saw, because they mentioned Nuf, which is 19, um, or also like, uh, what's the game in 
the original Casino Royale. Um, it's not uh, it's not blackjack, but it's something similar where ni- nineteen is the goal number. Okay. Um, and they changed it for the new movie to be Texas Hold'em because that's a more popular game. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so next one is Kushan. Cocon? Cocon, which is pronounced cushion. Oh, yeah, there we go. I wrote it down. Yeah, you wrote it down. Uh, Thug says says this to to Jason, uh, Jason Bard. It's a French word meaning pig or piglet. It's basically a pejorative. Yeah, an insult, insult. yeah. Uh, St. Dismas. This is uh, the abbey that uh, Jason Bard runs into uh, when he's trying. Jason Bourne? Jason Bourne, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he's kind of like Jason Bourne. He is, except gimpier. (laughs) Um, this is the abbey that Jason Bard goes into when he's trying to escape racist thugs. Um, Dismas was the good thief that was crucified with Jesus. His story is told in a completely unsubstantiated myth from the Arabic gospel of the infancy that enjoyed great popularity in the West during the Middle Ages and had the two thieves who held up the Holy Family on the way to Egypt. Dismas bought off Gestus, who was the with 40 drachmas, to leave them unmolested whereupon the infant predicted that they would be crucified with him in Jerusalem and that Dismas would accompany him to paradise. And his feast is on March 25th. And I have a little anecdote to this. Oh, God. So when I was in college, um, my parents sent me to a, a religious college, and one of the classes I took covered some of these apocryphal texts. It did not cover this one, but we did cover ones like, I believe the Gospel of Peter was one of them and the Gospel of James was another one. And in some of those, there are youth miracles by Christ. And there's debate as to whether he actually did anything before the first one referenced in the Bible at the wedding. So it was an interesting study. I mean, it, 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 the whole canonization process that happened in the 300s is kind of well, it was iffy. Uh, uh, to misquote a comedian, David Cross, it was a text that was... Translated from a dead language, copied, recopied, re-edited, recopied, retranslated, re-edited, retranslated, recopied, and based on uh, stories that were only spread by word of mouth for not, for some three hundred years. Yeah, so it's basically the world's oldest game of telephone. <laughs> kind of, yeah. But just that whole process of how they decided on canonization was was kind of interesting. The stuff had to have an internal consistency, which. Is weird. It's it's almost like saying you don't agree with the rest of it, therefore you can't be part of it. What if everybody else is wrong and you're right? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get into a reli- too much of a religious discussion here, but you know, there's entire scrolls that are just were completely discarded that had pieces of the story that they whoever was editing or combining or translating at that time didn't agree with, didn't like, whatever. So they just got put out. Yeah, it's an interesting process. You should read up on it if you're if you're interested. But we'll move on here to our our next point, the uh, Toltec civilization. So this is the society that built the temple where the Lazarus Pit is located. In this story. In this story. In in the Birds of Prey story, the Toltec civilization flourished in central Mexico between the 10th and mid 12th centuries CE. CE being the Common Era. They greatly influenced the Aztecs, who followed after them in later centuries. Yeah, I found that interesting that this the Mayans were kind of at the same time as the Toltecs. Um, they overlap just a, just a little bit. There, there's The Mayans last many more centuries than just yeah. these three. So it was kind of at the end of the Mayans, and the, then the, the Aztecs kind of took their inspiration from the Toltecs. That's kind of interesting. I mean, it's almost like they're the precursor, the Toltecs were the precursor of Azteca as far as culturally goes. Yeah, and you see a lot of similarities in the two cultures as far as, you know, building style and stuff like that. Interesting. Um, K, or Key, it's pronounced Key. It's spelled K, C-A-Y. It's pronounced Key. K. This is where all this stuff was going on, where the society was that Raish uh, burned burned down in his past lives. Uh, This is a small, low-elevation sandy island on the surface of a coral reef. So this was, it was fictionalized because I tried to find this on a map where this could be in Mexico and there isn't really anything that fits. Um, but it, it's, an, it's in the story, it's an island off of Mexico that's built on a key. Like the Ca- Cayman Islands? Cayman Islands? Um, actually, I don't have any good examples of an uh, island huh. that's a key. I didn't think to look that up. That'd be interesting. All right, next one we have is Adult, 
and this is a vocabulary word for you guys. It's uh, in reference to Rachel Gould's judgment. Adult means unable to think clearly or confused. I knew this one, um, and it's a really, really geeky reason. There's a old Sega Genesis game called uh, Shining Force 2. Great old RPG game. On, like I said, Sega Genesis. But that's one of the spells is addled, and it confuses or uh, makes the enemies attack each other. Nice. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, kind of a, 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 a – it might be addled makes it they can't cast spells. I can't recall. I think it might be they can't cast spells. But either way. Sounds like you're addled. Hey, I'll addle you. <laughs> um, you addle me all the time. <laughs> it's true. All right, next one. <laughs> uh, Castilian okay. Nobleman. This is one of the identities that Raj used because um, he's lived forever. The uh, Castilian people, uh, Spanish Castellanos, are certain inhabitants in regions of central Spain, including the least Castilla, at least Castilla-La Mancha, Madrid, and the central and eastern parts of Castile and Leon, who are the source of the Spanish language Castilian, among other aspects of cultural identity. So I remember we had uh, a similar thing with a group of people. Um, I want to say it was in the Arkham arc, a group of people that was in like northeast Spain. That could be. It's been a little while. Yeah, it's kind of interesting here. We have a different uh, subgroup of Spanish culture, the uh, Castilian uh, subset. Yeah, I mean, you know, and this is, we're talking about uh, Rachel Ghul here, how he's been alive basically forever. Uh, no one really knows how long, I don't think. Maybe they do. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, we got back to 10th, 12th century in this story. Yeah. I don't know if in other stories we'll get further back uh, recountings of where he's been. So so at one point it's just going to be like Rachel Ghul chilling with the Tyrannosaurus. Yeah, him and Apocalypse walking down the beach. Yeah, him and Apocalypse just chilling. You know, in the Amalgam universe. Yeah. <laughs> I think he uh, mixed the universes there for a second. Yeah, well, Amalgam did. It was the well, the crossover from well, the early 90s. Yeah, but didn't Amalgam just combine characters? Like it he had did, yeah. Wolverine and Batman for some reason. Was it like Captain America and Superman? Probably. Yeah, yeah I, I don't remember all of the, the combinations. But yeah, I guess it would be a combination then of Apocalypse and Ra's al Ghul. <laughs> Apocalypse Apocalypse. Apocagool. <laughs> That's horrible. That is awful. That is. Fits right. in with the Amalgam universe. And then we have the character Militia, who I wasn't familiar with at all. Yeah, I wasn't either. And he's uh, Guy Gardner's brother, the green, now green-red lantern, I think he is. Yeah, I don't know what he is now, because Red Lantern's died. I thought he was, uh, at, at least in recent, I mean, I'm not one yeah, up, but, but he was like green and red, and he was red before, then, yeah. Yeah, I'm betting he's probably back to being a Green Lantern since they canceled the Red Lantern titles. Or maybe he's going to be that combination in a Green Lantern book. Maybe, you know, a, a bridging gap. Because, I mean, while the Red Lanterns don't necessarily have to have their own book to to exist. That's true. They can uh, be a part of the other Green Lantern titles. Yeah. All right, so we'll move on here to our talking points now. All right, now this is one that I'm excited to get into. And we're talking about, was Batman right or wrong to reveal... Uh, Tim Drake's identity to Stephanie Brown. And this is, of course, from the Robin Secrets Revealed uh, uh, book that we covered earlier. So the the factors we have is that he couldn't reach Robin. Uh, Batman and Alfred were not speaking after the events of Officer Down. Robin did not contact Batman when he woke up again. And Robin does not go back to the cave to sleep. Robin has his, he lives at the university. He has his own life outside of the Bat family. Right, but he didn't even go back to his room to sleep he was just in some alcove on a roof yeah but i mean you know he, he doesn't check in yeah so i mean of course batman especially, you gotta remember this is after uh jason todd you yes know, this he, is he's the i think the first robin after jason todd right yeah he would so, he was the next robin so maybe batman was a little more protective of him especially when given that you know tim drake has a family He's still very protective of him because of what happened to Jason Todd. That's still very fresh. It's a very uh, open wound. Yeah, so why don't you give us the argument for why Batman was right to reveal Tim's identity okay. to Stephanie. Um, of course. And then I'll counter it after you're done. Uh, okay. So, as I said, you know, Robin didn't check in. And given the fact that this is still an open wound with Jason Todd, it's still a very sore point. He's going to be, you know, a little more protective. He's going to be a little bit more watchful, especially because... Tim has a family outside of Batman, so he's going to be like, I don't have, I don't have constant uh, Overwatch on this guy. So 
when he's out and about, I really need to keep track of where he is. And of course, you had Batman and Alfred not speaking. Now, this one's an interesting point because Tim calls Batman out on it. But you got to remember, Alfred is basically uh, Bruce Wayne's father figure. He's the only person that Bruce Wayne's known all his life after his parents died and raised him and brought him up in the world. So when he's having a fight, it's like a kid having a fight with a dad. And Batman is basically just a really, really big, really, really smart kid. He dresses up in tights. He goes and he fights bad guys. He doesn't really, he's never really grown up as far as that goes. So when, when his dad and him have a big blowout fight, they're not speaking. So he's basically, you know, he's still in that kind of teenager rebellious, even though he's like in his 30s, I think, at this point. He's still very much in that teenage rebellion phase where he's, you know, he had a big blowout with his, his quote-unquote father, and they, you know, they're not speaking. Uh, you know, and of course, Robin not contacting Batman when he woke up again is, you know, that goes back to the whole Robin being unreachable. Even after he was, quote-unquote, could be reached, or could have, you know, reached out to Batman and let him know, hey, I just crapped out on this, uh, in this roof, I'm okay, I'm alive, he doesn't do that. He never really, you know, cre- creates contact again. He never really uh, opens that channel. So, and of course, as I mentioned, him not going back to the cave means that there's no, at no point does he come back, does he come home, meaning that Batman has even less uh, situational awareness on his on where Tim Drake Robin is. And the last thing is, Stephanie knows Robin. She doesn't know that Tim's Robin until this point, but they've been romantically linked, romantically involved. So Robin knows Stephanie. He knows Stephanie is spoiler. Tim was basically holding out a piece of his life from Stephanie. He was keeping her out, locking her out of that piece of his life, only letting her know the mask, the costume, the 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 cover identity. And, you know, th- this really... This creates a story where those two can be romantically involved, and Stephanie even says so as much, like, hey, now that I know who you are, we can actually be romantically linked. We can actually you know, pursue a relationship here because there's nothing between us anymore. There's no walls, and I'm not constantly worrying or wondering who you are in your other life. So that's the arguments, at least in my opinion, for Batman. All right, well, let me argument, or argue the other side uh, against Batman revealing to Stephanie Tim's identity. Uh, he knew Robin's last known location. We're given that at the very beginning of of the story. Um, he had sent Tim to go watch over the new police commissioner, and he knew where he was at the moment the tracker died. So he has a starting point to figure out where Tim is. So that that's my first point. He also didn't appear to do much detective work. We're told, not shown, that he searched for Tim, but we don't know where he searched for Tim. And like I said, he knew his last location. He kind of should have been able to track Tim from there to a likely place that Tim would have gone. He could have reached out to Alfred. Yes, they're having a fight, but I think he knows that Alfred went to uh, be Tim's butler at Brentwood. So he knows Alfred is in touch with Tim. He could have reached out to Alfred, but he didn't. He also trusted Robin to handle himself enough to put him out on patrol. Why didn't he trust him enough to find a way to contact Batman if he got in trouble? Or he monitors the police scanners. If Robin got in big enough trouble, something should have come up on the police scanners. So the likelihood of him knowing if Robin ended up in trouble, even if the tracker failed and he had no form of communications, are pretty likely, I think. So I feel like he he jumped the gun on this in a way. And if he waited a day to get Stephanie involved, then that would have given Robin time to come back to the cave, which we know he didn't. But assuming that he was doing the responsible thing, which was to come back to the cave, you know, once he's finished his mission, instead of going back to and just being a kid that evening, like he slept through the day. He kind of lost his, his Tim identity for that day, in my opinion. Like, that's the time he's Tim, is during the day, and then once it's night again, he becomes Robin again. He didn't continue on with being Robin. He went back to his apartment. You know, he, he could, should have gone back to the, either contacted Batman and let him know what he found out surveilling the commissioner, 
and then continued doing his patrols in, in Brentwood or gone back to the cave to do whatever he needed to do there. I don't know what their relationship is at this point if he's operating primarily out of the cave or primarily out of Brentwood. It seems like he's operating primarily out of Brentwood, in which case then it's just a check-in. He doesn't go back to the cave all the time. So it seems like there's a lot of th- a lot of failings on Tim's part and a lot of failings on Batman's part. Agreed. And yeah. I fall on the against side. I don't know about you. You know, I for me, it's honestly split, and that's hard because Tim Drake is my favorite Robin. Um, to, to touch on a few points you said, on the one on the police scanner thing, not let's say he gets captured by Two Face, you know something that's happened a few times, you know that wouldn't necessarily be on the police scanners. I mean, yeah, there is that possibility, yeah, and, and there's a, a few other things in there, but mostly, yeah, um, yeah, I think it's they're both you know had failings in this, but I think the big question is was he was Tim Drake justified in his outrage of Batman revealing his identity? I think so because. He felt like Batman wouldn't want him to reveal his identity. And I yeah. read this somewhere else outside of outside of the story. So I'm I'm pulling this from from other sources. He felt like Batman would not want him to reveal his identity. That's why he was not telling Stephanie that he was Tim Drake and he was keeping it as Robin and Stephanie. Now the situation was that they ran into Stephanie either unmasked, she was unmasked or ran into her at, when she put the costume on, something like that. So that's how they know her identity. Yeah. So it's not it's not like she revealed it to them purposefully, but also it's not like they figured it out. So it it it's still a uh, asymmetrical power in the relationship there, though. It is, and that's I feel like a conversation that Tim and Batman should have had at some point about. You know, this person's working closely with me. You know, this person's working closely with me. Um do we need to keep the identity a, a secret? Because I think Oracle knows everyone's identity. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, most people in the Bat family know who the other people in the Bat family are. Now, there's she wasn't in the Bat family at this point. And she doesn't know that uh, Bruce Wayne is Batman. This is true. And that was the other argument that Tim was giving was he keeps Batman's secret, so therefore Batman should keep his secret. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think, I think a big problem with this story is the, as you said, the the tell-not-show. I think if we were uh, shown instead of told, we'd at least have a good sense of how long Batman actually looked. And maybe it was for more than one day. Maybe he did actually uh, go back and try and track him down and couldn't find him before he went and got Stephanie. Or, you know... I mean, it feels like, based on the information we're given in the story, so when he picks up Stephanie, it's morning. So it's the end of that night, is my interpretation of that. Because if you look at... If you look at um, Tim's timeline, when he goes, falls asleep up in, in the, uh, on the roof of that building, and he wakes up the next night, and then he goes back to Brentwood, and he uh, rescues that, that kid that's on drugs, Yeah. and then he runs into Stephanie and Batman that same night. So it's the next night he runs into Stephanie and Batman, and she was picked up by Batman in the morning. So to me, that means the same night that he picked up Stephanie. And what's interesting is, Batman totally just outed Tim. He didn't even like it wasn't like Stephanie came across Tim as Tim. Tim was already in his, his Robin outfit. Batman just straight up outed him. Yeah, and oh, so that's a, an aspect I hadn't talked about. Thank you for bringing that up. He could have had spoiler Stephanie looking for Robin and not told her who it was. Oh yeah. I mean that's perfectly reasonable cuz she doesn't know Tim. So she can't really help him as far as on the Tim aspect of Tim Drake. Yeah. She can only help him with the Robin aspect. So exactly. And, you know, that's kind of, you know, he Batman could have just straight up not outed Robin. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's just Batman being Batman kind of r- really uh, just not thinking of other people. And it's, it's like, dude, <laughs> come on. This is a guy who you trust who you have trust you explicitly, and then you just straight up drop a dime on them. I mean, I think the key thing here is to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Oh, yeah. As Batman. Put yourself in in Tim's shoes. Do you want Tim outing your identity because he can't find you? Exactly. 
And, of course, the answer is going to be no. But, you know, Batman, for all of his detective prowess, which a big part of detective is putting yourself in someone else's shoes, he really doesn't have that much empathy. <laughs> yeah, and also another thing I want to bring up here is something that wasn't in this story but is relevant from the Birds of Prey story and other stories we've had where Oracle's been in it. Oracle can find almost anything. Oh, yeah, he could have reached out to Oracle. She could have probably found him, and she already knows his identity. So, or I believe she knows his identity. So that would have, to me, been a better way to go about this. Oh, definitely. And you know what? Uh, I don't know what's going on in, say, Birds of Prey in April. Uh, the story we covered started in July, so there's a few months time span there, at least in publication dates. So I don't know. It seems like it really didn't, uh, you know, he didn't use all of his resources like he should have before straight up reaching out to Stephanie. Yeah, and I mean, we've seen with these type of stories, unless there's a crossover going on, they can always pull in another character from another story, and it doesn't really disrupt that story. Um, unless there's a crossover, then they're kind of focused on being in the same time. Yeah, something's going on. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, it just seems like Batman really didn't do his job as a detective. Yeah, so I think we're agreed there that yeah. Batman should not have outed Tim's identity. Yeah. Now, here's another another question, but and then we'll move on uh, from this point. Would this have been better served to be in a story that was longer? I mean, this was a single issue. I think so. I mean, you know, you don't want to draw it out too much, but you also don't want to, uh, you know, have it just explode on you. Although, counterpoint to my own point here, it does feel like it is appropriate to have it just a one-issue thing because it's something where it's just like, bam, it hits, it just like it hits Tim upside the head, blindsides him. It hits up, hits us upside the head, blindside, because we don't expect it to happen. Yeah, I, I do like the suddenness of it, but also, if let me, let me outline it this way. If we had an issue of the first part of the story where Tim falls asleep on the roof and where Batman is out looking for him for a while. Yeah. And then in the second issue, you have Tim's activities on the next night, not communicating with Batman. And then at the end of that issue, let's say that's the first half of that issue. And then it's daytime, the second half of that issue on the second day, not the first day or the third day, not the second day. You know what I mean? The second daylight. That's when he gets Stephanie involved. So it's, he's given him a whole, a whole complete day from when he lost contact. A 24-hour period. Yeah. And then you get Stephanie involved, and then you have this reveal at the end of the second issue, and then maybe have a third issue that's dealing with the fallout. See, and I agree that would be uh, that. That goes back to that show not tell that we always talk about. It seems like that's something we talk about a lot. Yeah, we do bring that up quite a bit, and I think it's it's valid. It, it is one hundred percent is. Of course, I was saying that because it's us bringing it up, but <laughs> you know, it's something we both want to see. We, we don't want to be told because. If you're told, it doesn't give you, you – you miss out on so much. Like we have a complete loss of sense of time in this one issue arc. And it seems like it would be better served to have a complete you know, story going along with it. Like you said, even a three-issue, two- or three-issue arc, you could have a great lead-up to it and the, the climactic end there where it just completely falls out on the third or end of second issue. Yeah, I think that, that would be much better. And I want to say that – there are times where telling is good. I think if you're dealing with something in the past, telling is fine. But I think if you're dealing with something that's in the present, telling is, is kind of a cop-out. Well, and that leads us right into Birds of Prey, doesn't it? Sure. <laughs> the reason I say that is the whole Rachel Ghoul's history with the uh, him uh, and his alternate identity. I don't remember what he was called. Um, Richard? Richard or some something, yeah. Some title that he purchased, he, you know, when the big reveal happened, he talked about actually being there when the uh, Toltec, Toltec, uh, Toltec, yeah, Toltec uh, culture was there, and then coming back. So we we get a little bit of show and a little bit of tell. Yeah, and I think there's the right balance of that because it don't you don't feel like you know all of Rish's history, but you feel like you get a good sense that he's been manipulating things in his Rishagul way for centuries. Exactly. So before Which we also means he's kind of not very good at what he does. <laughs> well, that's horrible and true. So um, let's go ahead and start with the bad points on that, though. And the first one we have is the story. and the So it starts off as a noir detective story with uh, Bard, Jason Bard. Yeah, it's very noir. Very I noir. Mean, it I is love like that. That, that. that first page is like 1940s 
uh, detective of, of all the detective agencies and all the cities she had to walk into mine yeah exactly oh like de- describing the what the, the the pretty woman coming needing help and all this stuff yeah it, it, it i i just i love that oh me too I'm, I'm a big fan of the noir so it's just so rad to see it's something uh <laughs> we both enjoy but then it jumps over to a james bond spy espionage type story which is why we, uh which is with, why we confuse him with jason Bourne because yeah. the names are so similar they are and you know and then it finishes with a superhero rescue story. So it, it's just completely disjointed. It feels like, you know, they couldn't decide what kind of story they wanted to tell, so they tried to tell three different types of story in one story. Yeah, and they just kind of drop uh, Bard out after that James Bond portion. Like, he just disappears. He's not a part of the rest of it. Yeah, he's just kind of non-existent. He doesn't contribute in any way. I mean, there's a story reason for it, but it still just made it feel even more disjointed than it already was. Exactly. So, yeah, that's definitely something we don't enjoy. If you're going to tell a story, tell a story. But don't get me wrong. This was still fun. I enjoyed oh, reading yeah. it. But we're, we're taking an analytical approach to these stories as well as just enjoying them. And when you put this story under scrutiny, it, it kind of falls apart. <laughs> exactly. The next one we have is Barbara Gordon's choice for tailing Dinah. Her, why did she choose Jason Bard? Because she, the only answer I have is because they have a history. And he's so, she's someone he... He's someone she thinks can do the job discreetly, whereas Batman, you know, he's not exactly great in tropical environments during the day. Um, and, and, you know, the the sub point here is, is should she have reached out to another member of the Bat family? And I'm thinking, would she reach out to Huntress? God, no, Huntress would just murder. Would she reach out to uh, Batman? No, Batman's not a good choice. Robin is subservient. Maybe Nightwing, but not really. I mean, the Nightwing we have now, if we if we jump out from this is 2001, if we go to 2015, the Nightwing we have now, Agent Grayson, yeah. would work. Oh, he'd work phenomenal. The Agent, Agent Grayson dick would work for this. Um, and maybe, that's, maybe that was the wrong wording to put in there. Maybe it's not someone in the Bat family. She has a ton of other connections, as we saw with getting Militia and Power Girl and Blue Beetle involved. Yeah. She yeah. has a ton of other ways that she could go about this. And I think the reason Bart is not a good choice... Not j- not just because of the history between Barbara and Jason, which we're given quite a bit of in the story, but also the history between Jason and Dinah. Dinah can spot him. Oh yeah, she like, knows when you're trying to when you're trying to um, tail someone in in suspiciously incognito, you don't it, send someone they know. Uh, you do it. You send someone who they wouldn't recognize because you don't want them to be uh, spotted. You don't want them to be made. Exactly. So, yeah, it was really a weird choice. I think it might have just been it was a character they wanted to use so he didn't, like, expire or that, you know, I don't know. It just didn't seem like a good fit for the story. No, and, I mean, Jason Bard's come up in a lot of Batman stories. Um, So he's used in other avenues. This just didn't seem like the right spot to use him to me. I I think he's great as a gumshoe, but if you try and put him in the James Bond role, it doesn't really work so good. And I think that maybe was part of what they were going for was trying to James Bond him up was just trying to show how difficult this was to find the right person. Like he fit one aspect of it. Great, but not the other aspect because he's also injured. He has that knee issue. I think yeah, it was yeah, so like his kneecap is destroyed or something. Yeah. So he can't, he's not very mobile. Um, so maybe they were trying to play off of that. Like none of this has a perfect solution. Everything that in this story is kind of flawed, you know, Dinah's choice in men, um, the rescue team with militia who has to be constantly told don't kill anybody. Yeah, Power Girl who has this feud with Barbara in the in the rescue mission. Like, there's a lot of flaw. Yeah, in this story. By so design, I don't know. Maybe by. that's what they were going for. And then you know, it, it, when you put it like that, it definitely elevates the story a few points, makes it a little better because it is just everything being made. It's being MacGyvered basically. And also, is there? any credence or any benefit to showing that Oracle is not perfect? I think so, honestly. I mean, you have, especially in the DC, you tend to have like these idealized characters with very few flaws. And it's something that you, having a flawed, a more flawed character in the forefront, because a lot of these lesser, quote-unquote lesser characters that aren't Batman, Superman, Flash, Wonder Woman, blah, 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 are lesser known. And the, a lot of the ones who are really good characters just never come to the limelight. Uh, Constantine being a great example. 
is a character I really enjoy. It had a show recently that got canceled because it didn't have enough of a following, but it was a great character. It's a great character who is flawed and he has motivations and he has his issues and it just makes for this very complex, compelling character. Oh, and, having, and maybe I can get you to start watching Arrow now because supposedly he's coming to Arrow. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, it, the whole problem is that I have so many shows to watch. I know. I've got the same problem. And, exactly. And Oh, my God. There's so many good shows out there. And Arrow, I feel like I'm so far behind. But I, I will try and catch that episode because the guy who they have playing – I know this is a non-sequitur. Uh, but the guy who they have and had playing Constantine was the most right choice I could imagine. It's it's like on par with doing uh, Ron Perlman as Hellboy. It is just that that much on point as a casting. So I'll have to take your word on it because I I'm not a fan of Constantine and I didn't watch the show. So. Yeah, you don't like magic though. Yeah, it, we've documented that on the show <laughs> more than a few times. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think having her as a flawed character. In, in this aspect, this very MacGyver slash A team kind of character and team that she assembles to rescue Dinah is great. You know, it, it, when you look at it like that, it's like, okay, yeah, no, this makes a lot more sense what they're yeah, going it, for. It definitely does add a little bit more realism, I would say, to the story that that comes across a little bit fun and fanciful. Yeah, it, it brings it back down to an earthy, earthy tone, but not in that real dark and gritty tone we're kind of getting or we have been getting in the past few years from dc they're starting to come out of it yeah i mean and this is back in 2001 so it's kind of in that era where the fun and fantastical was still flying yeah that's what i'm saying like it it fit this era very well and it added a little bit of realism and i think just maybe the right amount where i feel like they've gone a little overboard as of recently so i gotta say this takes it from a bad point to kind of a good point (laughs) so let's move on to our next bad point before we get make any more good points uh, the reconciliation between Dinah and Barbara. Yeah, this one bothered me a lot. Same here. So, you know, Barbara... Oh, so Dinah is justifiably angry with Barbara that she sent someone to spy on her. Someone that to she didn't trust Barbara. Regardless of Barbara being right, Dinah was still you know, a grown woman. Is still a grown woman who needs to make her own mistake and have her own life. And Barbara is very much a controller, a control freak. And I think... I think I mean, I don't. I didn't read the uh, Power Girl story, but I think we're getting kind of the same vibe from the interactions in this story with Power Girl and and um, Oracle. In that Power Girl's like, "I'm running this show. You're not running it." Uh, that she did the same kind of thing to Power Girl, and Power Girl and her irrevocably split. Yeah, the huge falling out. Or at least at this point, irrevocably yeah. split. And I, I'm not familiar with the story either. Can we talk just for a second how horrible Power Girl's outfit is? Oh, this was so much better than the the the, the circle. I mean, given it's it's much better than the boob window, but it's still pretty ugly. Yeah, it was ugly, and it it took me a minute to realize that was Power Girl. Same here, same here. I mean, it, it's 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 almost like a cross between Power Girl's outfit and Wonder Woman's outfit. Yeah, it is not a good. I mean, once again, a thousand times better than boob window, but. Still uglier in sin. Yeah, I, I agree with you. <laughs> so, uh, but so when Dinah gets injured, Barbara dumps her in the Lazarus pit instead of dumping herself to heal her, you know, uh, inability to walk. Yeah, she she makes the which I think is a good character point on her part. Yes, she sacrifices her own ability to walk and potentially be Batgirl again. In favor of saving a teammate who likely was going to die. So maybe it's not as much of a well, praise praise Barbara for not being selfish and the fact that Dinah looked like she was about to die. And true, but you know, is also does that count as an apology? No, I, that is not an apology. Exactly. And some might argue that Barbara could have also used the pit because each pit is good for one use per person. I was reading up on the Lazarus okay. pit. But then Blue Beetle has to get two of them that are gone um, mad, a little bit insane out, and I think that's why they chose not to have her use it as well. Yeah, I mean, just for those who aren't super familiar, which I'm not as familiar, but if you use the Lazarus Pit, or if a character uses the Lazarus Pit, they get they're healed completely. Which, in the case of Dinah, healed her infertility, healed her broken canary scream, and you know healed her from almost dying. Um, but when you come out of the Lazarus pit, you're mad, you're insane, you're jealous, you're angry, all those negative emotions. So when Dinah comes out, she's using that canary scream. She's just wrecking everything. 
Yeah, I, I didn't get that it had anything to really do with emotions in this depiction. I understand what you're saying in other depictions. That's that's the way it has been. In this depiction, it just seemed like she was out of control. It just seemed like Cyclops without his visor to, to go Marvel. Like with his eyes open without his visor, can't do anything about it. It's just going to happen. It's just going. Yeah. I, I thought that Dinah had some, some dialogue after uh, she came out of the pit. She has some, but not at this moment. I think... I, I don't remember any dialogue between when she came out of the pit, when she got knocked out. I think that the, all the dialogue happened after that when okay. she came to again. I, I could be wrong, though. I, and I'm trying to remember, and you know how bad my memory is. Yeah, and I, I'm sorry. I don't have that information at yeah. the tip of my brain either. No sweat. But, yeah, so... But the, that's one thing I did want to talk about was the effects of the Lazarus Pit on Dinah. So do you mind if I pick up that? Go ahead. You, you pick up. Um, the effects of the Lazarus Pit are very short-lived for her. And not covered once they finish rescuing Dinah from Raisha's temple. Like, she goes back to Barbara's apartment and is there for a week, and then we see her again after that week, and she's fine. Like, we're not shown anything of what we just talked about with the, the being mad, the being hyperly um, negative negative emotions like anger and jealousy and, r- and rage and stuff like that, the, the emotions that are generally classified as negative. We're not shown any of that. And... Also, she's okay with Barbara at that point. Like, the the anger she had before Raish took her away and the whole scene at the temple happened is just gone. And I feel like it was never truly addressed. No, it, it was the, once again, tell not show, where you have a, was this, a five-issue arc? Mm-hmm. And they couldn't squeeze in a little bit of time to show the reconciliation process, or at least you know those two coming to terms with what happened and, and making up. You know that that seems like a poor management of time. I, I definitely agree, especially with how much dialogue time was given to Power Girl and um, Oracle's remaining Team. problems. Yeah, I feel like you would have had good juxtaposition of that to show uh, Dinah and Oracle's reconciliation after they had a similar spout to kind of just show the difference between Power Girl and Dinah. Well, and you know what? You you said it already. We have so many times where Militia needs to be reminded not to, you know, kill anybody. And he makes wise wise Mark uh, quips about not killing people. It's like that. that's all panel space that could have been utilized later in the book. They could have saved panel space and actually done something with it. Yeah. It's difficult for us not working in the industry to really critique things to that level, I would say. But I definitely feel like there is, even if you just extend the story another issue to give us the reconciliation, I think would have been a benefit. Yeah, I exactly. And in, true, very true. We don't work in the industry. We have no experience in the industry aside from being fans and reading a lot of comic books and talking about them. So... You know, we can't really say that that is, you know, the case or not the case. But from an outsider perspective, you know, yeah, that's what I said, basically. <laughs> and just to dive into this just a little bit more, uh, one possible explanation for Dinah no longer having the hatred that we're shown or, or the anger that we're shown when her she steals Bard's microphone and talks to Oracle before, like midway through the story is that in some instances of the Lazarus Pit, the user comes out with a memory loss. Now, the the one that I can reference to this is the most recent season of Arrow, which I know you haven't watched. Um, Oliver Queen's sister gets killed, and they put her in a Lazarus Pit to bring her back, and she has memory loss. So there is that aspect of it, but to counter that in this very story, she references that scene after coming out of the Lazarus pit, the argument that they had on the dock, her and Oracle. Exactly. So that's a possible explanation that is that just countered in the story itself. So, Yeah, exactly. It's something like you could use it, but then they just totally 180'd it and didn't utilize that at all, which I'm almost glad they didn't utilize it because it would have felt like a cheap uh, soap opera ploy. I can definitely see that, but I feel like no explanation is even worse than a bad explanation. I, you know, I can agree with you there. And that's the that's what I was about to say, actually, word for word, just about. So, yeah, not a fan of that. Okay, well, let's move on. Um, so we got some good points. We do have one one good point for this book, which are the key takeaways. Yes. Uh, 
Barbara and Dinah are back to a good working relationship, and I think that's essential going forward for Birds of Prey. Because the one thing that I dislike about these type of books, and we've seen it in certain Bat Family stories and in a book like Birds of Prey, is when the leader, the organizer, and one of the facilitators or one of the, the partners is it going through a feud. It just kind of makes that those stories irritable. Yeah, it, just because you're getting their emotions towards each other intermixed with whatever story you're trying to tell. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. And there's people who like that type of stuff. Not me. It just turned like uh what was that one movie uh Dinner for Schmucks? Mm. I don't know, did you see I it? I saw it. Yeah, I was extremely uncomfortable. It was like this isn't funny. It's just makes me angry because they're just picking on these people. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And yeah, it's completely turned me off. And it's the same type of deal where just going and you know, of course, my taste and your taste, one, were totally different from each other, but two, were totally different from anyone else. There's people who like that, which is fine. But for us personally, or at least for me personally, and I, th- I thank you from what you just said, that's like, uh, no. I, I think occasionally it's necessary, but I think dwelling on it is where I have the problem. Yeah. When it, when it lingers for too long. Um, and I can't really say what is and what is not too long. I think it's, it's situation dependent. Because I, I, there's a number of times where I feel like, something has happened between two characters and within an issue or two, it's back to normal. It's like, well, that has no gravitas. Yeah. That that event has no meaning because you're back to status quo so quickly. But then there's other times where something has lingered for like a year or, or so. And it's just like, can we please move on? We we got that it's important. We understand it's time to, to, to do the story where they get back together and get back on the same page. Well, and, but there's also times once again, go back to Marvel uh, where it, actually is really good like cyclops and wolverine relationship and the contention there has always been there and it still feels appropriate it doesn't feel drawn out it doesn't feel uh uh produced or or overdone it, it just feels appropriate to have that relationship constantly there yeah and i think that's where it's kind of on a case-by-case basis as far as you can cite good examples and you can cite bad exactly. examples and there's probably at least in my opinion more bad than good but there's a few times it's good yeah, and it, and like you said, it's all, it's somewhat a matter of taste as yeah. far as the particular stories you like. I mean, we mentioned I don't particularly care for magic in my Batman stories. Yeah, you don't Some like magic in do. general. <laughs> like, I, in the right context, I do, but <laughs> it's it's a small context. Yeah, you have a very you have a very narrow window for magic. The, the other one we have is the Black Canary Scream being back, and possibly uh, she's no longer infertile. Yeah, is, it's not really specified if that actually happened, but. From later stories with her and Oliver Queen, I think. Well, and even in this story, you know, Rachel Ghoul says, "I will." You know, when she when he says, "You will bear me a son," she's like, uh, "No, I'm infertile." So he says, "Oh, I'll make that better," without even consulting her, just like kind of deciding for her that that's what uh, she wants. And her reaction to that, I thought, was very good. Yes, very real, very human. So I mean, it's implied that the Lazarus Pit could quote unquote fix that. Um. Not that that's, there's anything wrong with it. Not that there's anything, you know, that it's it's nothing to judge or gauge a human on. I just want to say, you know, of course. But, you know, the Lazarus Pit could, as I said, repair that damage. Um, then why wouldn't it when she's dipped in? I mean, of course, she's severe, much worse off when she's dipped in than she would have been before. But who knows? It's not really explicitly said in this one. No, it's not, but I believe from future stories, she has a child at some point. Okay, cool. So, yeah. All right, so we are going to give our ratings here of these stories. Dylan, why don't you start us off with Robin? So the Robin one, I got to admit, I really loved. Uh, I love that there are repercussions, at least apparently repercussions, for Batman outing Robin. I love that there's actual, you know, drama there and actual character development with the relationship between Batman and Robin. And of course, spoiler, getting a bigger role in the book and getting a uh, a chance to be part of that life, but that it comes at the expense of Robin's identity, something he wasn't really willing to share. Thinking about it, you know, there are some flaws there with Tim Drake knowing Stephanie's idea. I I identity i couldn't word there but you know not being willing to share that he was tim drake so i don't know it just seems kind of lopsided and weird but you know i really enjoyed this story being a one issue i wish they could have done more as we talked about so i gotta give it a three and a half out of five just because 
there they did have the flaws that we mentioned and that we talked about john yeah and i agree with what you're saying there for the most part you know it is good to see that story progressing i just kind of wish this had been a longer i feel like we're just kind of thrust in really quickly into batman outing tim's identity and as we talked about in the discussion points there's a number of things he could have done differently to where he wouldn't have had to do that um and so i just i feel like this is a very average story despite how it moves the character along i feel like it's it's only a 2.5 out of 5 so our overall rating for that would be a 3 out of 5 three batterings out of 5 three batterings out of 5 and now we'll move on to birds of prey here uh i'll start on this one all right um I like that this was kind of a Bond-style action story, and I felt like they did that pretty well. Um, it, it just there's a lot of stuff here, and some things just get dropped, like um, Bard's. Uh, it was Jason Bard's interaction with in the story. He's, he's there for like half the story, and then he's just dropped out of the story. So I can't rate it really highly, but I feel like it was a, a an above-average story. So I'm going to give it a three out of five. So yeah, I I thought it was a below-average story. It was. <sighs> It, it couldn't figure out what it wanted to be. And in its indecision, it created the issue of not... It, it felt disjointed to me. It felt like the connecting strands were barely there. I have to give it a 2.5 out of 5. All right. So our collective rating on that is a 2.5 out of 5 batterings for Birds of Prey, The Big Romance. Um, that That's all we had there. If you want to share your thoughts with us, of course, uh, please leave us in comments on the this page, the episode page on the batmanuniverse.net and if you like our style you like what we do you'd like to hear us talk uh you can you should check out our other uh comic book story art comic podcast uh arc reaction podcast at arc reaction podcast.blogspot.com yeah and uh be sure to check out everything else that's offered at the batmanuniverse.net you have comics reviews you have tv reviews they're reviewing gotham episode by episode they have uh, more podcasts than just this which you should definitely check out and they have news all things basically if it's batman they have it yeah and they're always trying to add more stuff so it's it's a great portal for for batman fans all right guys so that leads us to the credits so uh, robin 87 secret reveal was april 2001 written by chuck dixon art by pete woods and the editors were uh the assistant editor frank barrios and uh my matt idelson Birds of Prey, episodes thir- or issues 31 through 35, July to November 2001. The writer is Chuck Dixon. Art was Michael McDonald on 31 through 32. Butch Gucci, 33 through 34. And William Rosado on 35. The editors, uh, Nachi Castro, assistant editor on 31. Michael Wright, the assistant on 32 to 35. And Matt Idelson was the main editor. Thank you guys for listening.